The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawkbox. The headlines, China's growth is the weakest in nearly 30 years, but the numbers meet expectations as the trade war with the United States takes its toll. The fourth quarter print coming in at 6%. That's also in line with estimates. President Trump's impeachment trial begins with a reading of abuse of power and of obstruction of Congress charges as a government watchdog finds the White House broke the law by withholding military aid to Ukraine. The S&P 500 breaks through the 3,300 mark for the first time ever as Wall Street hits fresh records on the back of strong bank earnings and data. Plus, joining the club, Google parent Alphabet becomes the fourth company to hit a trillion dollar valuation. Joining peers Apple, Microsoft and Amazon in that exclusive club. Meantime, Microsoft pledges to wipe out its carbon footprint. CEO Sachin Nadella tells CNBC the capitalist and economic system is at risk if businesses don't act the system that we all enjoy, I think will fundamentally be in jeopardy if the planet, which is the resource, the factor of production that has fueled all of our capitalist society, will be in danger. Good morning. We're starting out with some earnings crossing from the luxury sector. And this from Richmond, the specialist watchmaker. It has registered modest sales growth. It says notwithstanding a challenging situation in Hong Kong, uh, China with higher sales in directly operated boutiques and wholesale sales broadly in line with the prior year period. When it comes to the third quarter sales print that's crossed at 4.16 billion euros, the uh, sales in the quarter up 6%. So strong growth in the European and Americas. So uh, two key markets when we talk about uh, luxury at this stage. Asia Pacific up low digit, strong double digit increases in China and Korea, more than offsetting a marked contraction in Hong Kong. So as we talk about the protests that have been taking place on the ground in Hong Kong, here is another company that is seeing an impact from uh, some of those events that have played out. But uh, patches of the world are decent key markets in the West, Europe and Americas, and uh, that key Chinese market. So uh, not a bad uh, number when you take a look at those jurisdictions. Uh, but uh, the overall print, you've got to say, is weak because of that Hong Kong event. Jeff. Thanks very much indeed, Karen. Well, of course, the Chinese data, the big story this morning in terms of whether you want to put money to work in this economy going forward. The Chinese growth figure slowed to its weakest pace in almost 30 years for 2019. But it did still manage to meet expectations despite the trade war with the United States. Full year GDP coming in at 6.1 percent, which is in line with the government's targeted range. Uh, Despite additional stimulus and the phase one trade deal with the United States, analysts expect growth to slow further this year. 
Well, let's catch up with Martin Sung. He is in Beijing at the moment and can tell us more about this story. And Martin, we have seen some tweaking of the triple R. This is one way that the government can try to stimulate the economy. There is some speculation as well that we might see some injection of stimulus around Chinese New Year, which comes at the end of this month. What are you hearing on the ground in Beijing? Indeed. Good morning, Jeff, and good morning, Europe, and uh, uh, Karen as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, just ahead of the Lunar New Year, that's usually when there's a, a, a huge call for money. So the central bank wants to make sure there's enough cash on hand to meet those needs. So that's to be expected. It's a seasonal, or rather it happens uh, every year. In terms of for the stimulus for the economy, you mentioned the triple R cuts. Uh, likely, the consensus seems to be for economists, they penciled in about another 100 basis points down in terms of the triple R for 2024 this year, as well well as potentially a lower uh, LPR, a loan prime rate, which is now taken over as the key benchmark in China. But to the data that you mentioned, overall, what we're talking about is a bad news, but maybe a good news story as well. What I mean by that is this. The bad news, yes, growing at its slowest pace in 30 years. The data confirmed that. The good news, the secondary data in the verticals, though, whether it's FAI, fixed asset investment, retail sales, or industrial production, and I think we have a graphic, we can talk through those. Uh, those looked a little bit uh, better. In fact, all three numbers, uh, they beat uh, forecasts or expectations. Uh, if you break it down, IP, which is approximate manufacturing, that's important. There's a nice beat there. Industrial, excuse me, uh, retail sales, approximately for the consumer, Mr. and Mrs. Wong out here on the street in uh, Beijing, for example. Uh, that's uh, probably more important because it's a bigger part of the economy right now, consumption than uh, exports. And they build on some nice numbers we had, you'll remember, for December trade and before that, even though November. So if we get uh, also positive numbers in January and subsequent month, it could start to confirm a trend that maybe we've got some green shoots here. Maybe we've got the maybe you've got the beginnings of a cyclical rebound or recovery, although people we've talked to earlier today uh, said a lot of it. Uh, the thing, the key part to watch is domestic demand and whether that can uh, keep pace. But let's side into the trade war phase one. If I mean, the timing certainly doesn't uh, may not be helping China, but certainly doesn't hurt because the status quo stays in place. Tariffs are not going down fine, but at least they're not going up. So that buys China a little bit of breathing room and space. And perhaps uh, these green shoots, this uh, cyclical rebound can gain a bit of traction here. Jeff. Brilliant. Martin, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I think you've explained the challenges for the government very neatly. Ginny Yan has joined us on set. She is Chief China Economist at ICBC Standard Bank. Ginny, good morning to you. I mean, key to this, it seems to me, is will there be any feel-good if the uncertainty around the Phase 1 trade deal encourages consumers to start spending again here because it's been an area of concern i think for those who want to invest in the chinese economy at the moment in the short term certainly yes sentiments matter and the u.s china phase one it's all about sentiments so of course we're going to have a little bit of a turnaround in sentiment i think data is already showing that perhaps on the pmi front etc but the fundamentals for me hasn't changed and it won't change for the foreseeable future um, i think what was very important and crucial that came out of the data was that despite the aggregate growth um, 
China is entering into the middle income trap sort of territories. Per capita GDP for the first time has now reached over $10,000. So this is by definition, many economists would define that as a middle income country. So to avoid the middle income trap is exactly what China is facing right now. So for me, the, the data on the short term does perhaps swing the market sentiments, yes, for sure. But the greater challenge is the fundamentals haven't really changed. Which is fascinating because we did see record loan growth last year and you would expect the result of that investment would ultimately be an, an improvement in GDP growth and productivity. But because of this middle income trap that you talk about, clearly there are structural problems at this stage. Do we think that Beijing is prepared to embark on further structural reform that will help it through this phase of economic development? Because if it doesn't embrace the hard decisions about money that isn't being appropriately allocated in the economy, this middle income trap will only get worse. I think for the next, uh, so for this year, 2020, we are still um, seeing that the priority is to double GDP growth. So for this year, probably those reforms won't be priority and emphasis. After that, however, I think that will happen. Um, to reach the sort of uh, doubling of GDP 2020, we still need to see roughly 6% GDP growth. So it's very difficult to see, despite all the headwinds, that uh, Beijing will change its course this year. If, um, and we take a couple of, good morning to you. If we take a couple of these points at face value from the phase one trade deal, that there is more protection for American companies on things like intellectual property and trade secrets, it, that presumably puts the cost of production for some Chinese companies up a little bit. And if they're buying this, these American agricultural goods and other American goods as well, compared to the goods they're buying from elsewhere as well, are they buying these at a higher price or the same price? That is another big question. What I'm saying is the concerns about consumption in China and the fact that we've pivoted to the service side, to the consumer, that's the aim of, uh, of the government and what have you. How are things going to be cheaper for China either to produce or to consume? So the benefits for them from the trade deal, I'm scratching my head a bit. I think you're absolutely right in that uh, for China, probably there's uh, very little significant improvement in terms of its terms. Um, from a consumption side, however, I don't think the price or the value of goods is really uh, the key point. The key point for me is how consumption momentum in terms of how Chinese households and the government indeed spends going into the future. If you look at the income growth data, hasn't really improved that much. It's stabilized at best, but it's still underperforming um, GDP growth. And income and uh, disposable income growth is what's going to be driving consumption going forward. And by the way, consumption is still more than 60% of the contribution to GDP growth. Yeah. So China very much depends on consumption. Yeah. Exactly. But our average household um, seeing their household, you know, their living standards improve uh, and getting to the standards of the US and developed markets. That 
perhaps will be quite so, a long time. Ginny, where does this leave the, the trade agreement? Because one of the big fears, as we saw all the detail, was how China manages to hit those targets, the 200 billion over two years, the ag numbers as well. When you talk about some of the weakness in consumption, does it make it even more challenging for China to hit the numbers? Very challenging indeed. If you look at uh, the categories where China will purchase from the US, mainly manufacturing goods, so obviously the machineries, etc., will take on uh, the significant proportion of those purchases. But others, including agricultural goods, energy, uh, for example, and also services. I think services is somewhere where China perhaps could buy a lot more from the US. It currently already does. China will start to run uh, maybe a, a, a deficit in terms of services trade. And on the goods side, China's current account balance is already um, uh, balancing, I guess. Um, but I think it's, it will be very difficult to prove that 200 billion is going to um, not be displacing its purchases from elsewhere, particularly Which emerging China economies. China was keen to shut down this week in some of its commentary. It was keen to point out that there's still a role for other third parties to the agreement. I think it's um, uh, I think it's you know something that China sees um, you know will be um, very important because you know the Belt and Road Initiative is all about diversifying its uh, exporters right mm. so so where it buys from and indeed if you look at uh, manufacturing goods energy in particular that will be coming more and more from emerging economies and also agricultural goods as well. Ginny, you're going to stay with us so we'll come back to the conversation in just a moment here. Let's talk about that other big economy. Uh, the United States retail sales numbers helping U.S. markets. The number came in at 0.3% in December, which was in line. The data from the Commerce Department comes off the back of low unemployment and widespread hiring. Uh, control sales, which excludes items such as autos and gasoline, rose 0.5%, the biggest increase in five months. And I think data, which has been so unfashionable, and valuations, which has been so irrelevant, make it more interesting. Because let's look at the evidence here. One, we're not worried about phase one trade deals at the moment. It's almost been kicked into the long grass on phase two until after the US election. We don't seem to be worried about Chinese growth at the moment. Glacial pace down. We're not even worried about interest rates moving. The Fed said they're staying where they are for the moment unless anything really meaningfully changes. The market's taken that on board. Not even worried about dear old Brexit anymore. So the market's got other things it needs to focus on. It has to be on data and valuations doesn't it? Maybe not. Maybe that's a bit forlorn. But the data was good. And Jeff mentioned one of the key pieces, retail sales. Let me expand upon that onto the weekly jobless claims, only 204,000. That is a really good figure as well, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. And let me expand further and look at the Philly Fed data, which was the highest we've seen since May 19. Do you remember in May 19? We weren't cutting any rates back then in those days. Very interesting to see, I think, as well. So that is interesting on that front as well. So the data on three fronts was very good. Look over my shoulder. The markets, absolutely gangbusters. Record levels, 3,300, 2,900, both being cleared as well. Let me just tell you, by the way, for those of you who think it's a narrow-based rally, and goodness knows we know in terms of concentration of funds, there is a bit of a fang focus, isn't there? But it wasn't just tech that hit a record level yesterday. It was consumer discretionary, utilities, healthcare, industrials, consumer staples. Every single one of those sectors hit a record level. Even consumer services hit a high we haven't seen since most of you young pups out there weren't even trading. 2001. Yeah, right. So let's move on to individual companies. Here's a story for you. Morgan Stanley, let's stay on this for a little bit. Look at that. One year change up 27%. So all those smarty pants out there geographically, how far is Frankfurt from New York? 
Yeah, well done. It's about 7,000 kilometers. Uh, well, 6,199 kilometers, actually. A little bit less than that, right? But I'm not asking you in geography. I'm term in terms of performance of banks out of New York compared with banks out of Frankfurt. And the answer is light years. Absolutely light years. And because you saw earlier in the week JP Morgan coming in with this crazy rote return on tangible equity of 19%. Well, not far behind. Morgan Stanley having a very respectable 13-handle figure, talking about the next couple of years, 13 to 15% wrote. And after that, they want to get as high as 17%. Light years is the answer, not 6,199 kilometers. Let's move on. Alphabet. Again, big changes at the top of this company. I mean, look at that. Look at that. And again, 33% higher year to date. They're in the trillion dollar club. We'll do some big analysis on this one a little bit later on. Right, Asian indices. How are they reacting to this miraculous fact that the Chinese, after only 17 days of this year, with the most diverse, enormous economy on the planet, can give us an accurate GDP rating of 6.1%, which is banging line of expectations. They've given it after 17 days. They're not even like the Americans who have to do about three revisions. Anyway, here we are, down 026 of 1% on the Shenzhen. And we can have a look at the opening calls, the European indices. They look all right, don't they, really? If you're, if you're long, if you're short, never mind. 129 points higher for the FTSE MIB. Zetradax seeing 69 to the good. Hello. Uh, we're doing distances between cities now. This I the was new making thing. the metaphor in terms yeah, of the financial good. performance being greater than the actual geographical distance. Yeah, it was good. Thank I liked you. it. I enjoyed that. It coming, up, living. It's coming up on the program, <laughs> uh, Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro tells CNBC the US's phase one deal with China is a major achievement, but there's still plenty to do in phase two. I, I'm told there's an event going on next week where we've all got to put our thermals on. Uh, yes, it's the World Economic Forum, and Karen, Jeffrey, and myself will be donning the latest in ski wear uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos starting on Monday. Well, at least Karen will. Uh, plus, stay tuned to find out which world leaders are heading up the mountain and who's opting out this year. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Right, welcome back. The European Union's Trade Commissioner, Phil Hogan, says talks with US officials have gotten off to a good start as Brussels looks to soothe the tensions with Washington. The two sides are looking to avoid an escalation in tit-for-tat tariffs. Who wrote that? Tit-for-tat tariffs, I like that. Uh, and reach an agreement on France's digital tax proposals. However, Mr Hogan expressed some scepticism. Uh, we use a C on this side of the Atlantic, uh, around the US's phase one trade deal with China, saying the EU will scrutinise whether it's a uh, complaint uh, with the WTO rules. Now, speaking to CNBC, the US's director for trade and manufacturing policy, Peter Navarro, he of the hawkish nature, said the phase one deal included key provisions around IP technology, uh, technology transfer and currency manipulation. What we got in the phase one deal is uh, very strong protections for intellectual property, which is worth about 300 to 500 billion a year. 
if we can get that moving. We got a good start on force technology transfer. We've got uh, a strong currency manipulation uh, provision in there. Uh, those were the uh, three of the original, what I call the seven deadly structural sins. And above that, of course, we got some very good purchases, 200 billion uh, over the 27 bench, uh, 2017 benchmark, spread out over two years, spread out over four sectors, ag, energy, uh, financial services, uh, and manufacturing. Uh, and of course, we got um, financial market access, which has been uh, kind of a white whale for the folks on Wall Street uh, that you interact with every day, banks, credit card, uh, insurance companies. So that, you know, so that's, that's a solid phase one. What we didn't get uh, is what we have to uh, search for in phase two. Well, they didn't get what they have to search for in phase two. So we'll see what phase two brings. Uh, meanwhile, China has posted an acceleration in industrial production and investment for December. As the economy finished the year on a firmer note, industrial output grew 6.9%, its strongest pace in nine months. Fixed asset investment was up 5.4% year on year, while retail sales for December rose 8%. Ginny Yan is with us, Chief China Economist at ICBC Standard Bank. There's a very complicated issue of credit availability in China at the moment. As you look at the um, stats coming into year end, it does appear that non-bank lending has slowed as the government has sought to stamp out the shadow banking sector. But the consequence of that is we've seen VCPE flows decline, we've seen some defaults, and we've seen some issues with bond issuance here. So as we come into the early part of 2020, do you anticipate credit growth will expand and the government will help drive money into channels? I think it's interesting. I think overall credit uh, has to remain pretty high and buoyant. Um, but as you highlighted, it's, it's about who delivers that credit and also the credit transmission in terms of big banks will also always lend to uh, those who it knows very well. Now, the biggest problem and challenge for PBOC, the central bank, has been trying to get that credit towards SMEs, private sector, the ones that are seen to be a little bit more risky compared to the state-owned enterprises. And, and that is very apparent in when you see the, the reforms in terms of rates, uh, so in terms of the monetary policy instruments, is that that's why they have to use more instruments to try and encourage banks and the financial sector to, to, to really filter the credit towards well, where it's needed. Well, let me ask you, is there any likelihood that we're going to get a big gesture this year at all from the government? Something like allowing the band around the exchange rate to widen considerably, maybe even go away, or perhaps uh, they allow um, capital inflow and outflow to increase in size or maybe they just remove the restrictions completely? I think for the reasons I highlighted earlier and in that 2020 is a crucial development year, lots of goals to be met um, and stability is a crucial uh, terminology for this year. So I don't see any big bangs in terms of new regulations. I think there was a little bit of speculation in terms of as part of the phase one deal, does that mean China will widen its trade band around the currency? I don't 
think that will happen. And probably one of the reasons also is that is it needed right now? Because if you look at the volatility, it's not re even touching that 2% uh, trading band around the fixing. Um, so indeed, is that going to do much to the actual valuation of a currency and, and the overall, right. uh, you know, the currency, um, you know, s s uh, s system? I think I think it's debatable, but I really don't see any sort of significant changes in either regulation or policy stance. Can I ask you about luxury? Because as we talk about retail sales in China, one big standout component has been that luxury end of the market. And we've just had numbers from Richemont today, which produces a very high-end jewellery and watches all the famous brands uh, out there in the stores. And the numbers, very strong uh, double-digit sales growth in the Chinese market, mm. in contrast to, to the Hong Kong market where you saw a reversal. Just talk us through the dynamics and how mainland shoppers are uh, conducting their purchasing now that Hong Kong really isn't the go-to market for many of those shoppers. Well, it's interesting. Also, uh, as part of actually the, the data releases today, what was said was that online shopping took um, now over 20% of overall retail sales. And perhaps this is, a, a you know, some structural movements on how people spend in China. They probably so used was it just to... the authenticity thing that they managed to take, the, the fear that many Chinese had that they were buying fake goods, counterfeit goods, and now you've had some very decent websites that have built out authenticity policies. Number one, and number two also where they spend, because obviously perhaps they used to shop a lot in Hong Kong, for example, they now go to Europe and they have probably a more a wider choice of places to purchase those luxury and goods. And indeed, Shanghai, for example, has become you know, a luxury center as well. So many cities, the urbanization pace, I would say, of mainland China is also a factor, I think, influencing the luxury end. You only have to look at car to see where that retail sales is going in China. It has been relatively weak, but there are still momentum driving particular um, you know, sectors of the, the, the car market. Um, and the overall trend is that retail sales will continue to be relatively robust because the demand is still there. The car ownership percentage is nowhere near the US or even neighboring Asian economies. So, those uh, who don't have cars will still have to buy and they're likely to buy, you know, relatively quality cars. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.